You are listening to the Longitude Research Podcast, Thought Leadership Insights, where senior figures from the firm, together with leading marketing executives, explore key trends shaping the evolution of thought leadership and marketing. I'm your host, Fergal Byrne. I'm very pleased today to introduce Rob Coveney to the podcast. Rob is Head of Brand and Internal Communications at the Oil and Gas Division of DNVGL. Rob has managed DNVGL's annual industry outlook, an oil and gas industry barometer, for almost eight years. In that time, this research has grown and evolved to adapt to a changing landscape in a volatile market. In this interview, Rob shares his insights as to how DNVGL has ensured this flagship thought leadership initiative has remained relevant and insightful over this time, how the firm measures success and discusses the importance of internal advocacy. So thank you very much, Rob, for taking the time today to speak to Longitude Thought Leadership Insights podcast. Thanks ever so much for having me, uh, Fergal. I look forward to speaking with you. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you today about the great thought leadership programs you've been doing at DNVGL, in particular the annual industry outlook and various other research reports and surveys that you've been working on over the years. Maybe a good place to start, Rob, if you could tell me a little bit about your role at the company and maybe also about the scope of the business. Yeah, of course. So I'm head of brand and internal communications uh, for the oil and gas business of DMVGL. We're a risk management and quality assurance uh, organization working as technical advisors to uh, a number of different industries, including oil and gas, power and renewables, maritime and uh, and life sciences as well. We're an organization of around 13,000 technical experts based in uh, over 100 countries. uh, And our head office is in Oslo in Norway. So you're, you're head of brand and internal communications, Rob. What's that entail exactly? So from the brand side of things, Fergal, one of my uh, one of the key elements of my role is to develop uh, DMVGL's position as a provider of, of foresight and insight to the industries that we serve. Uh, that's really key for us because we're an organization of technical experts. We sell our experts' knowledge and expertise. Uh, and so to come across in the market as a an authoritative commentator, not just on technical issues that uh, support the, the, the efficiency, sustainability, safety of the oil and gas industry in particular, but also to be able to come across as a, uh, an authoritative commentator on macroeconomic industry trends. Where's the oil and gas industry going in the years ahead is very useful for our customers and it helps to build uh, the brand position that we're, we're looking to achieve. Right. Now, can you tell me a little bit about the oil and gas annual industry outlook? Yes, yeah, so our Industry Outlook program has been running for just nearly eight years now. The purpose of the research program is to survey nowadays just over uh, 800 uh, senior oil and gas professionals across the industry, across the oil and gas, gas value chain. And we use this as one of our flagship communications and thought leadership programs for each year. The Industry Outlook program is pulled together into a report identifying key trends for the year ahead. But it also goes much wider. It uh, it forms the backbone and the context for uh, much of the media relations work we do as an organization, many of the events that we uh, attend as an organization. So it helps to provide context to the industry issues that we help our customers uh, overcome. And it also helps to position us, as I've said before, as uh, as a key commentator on what we expect, where we expect the industry to be going in the year ahead. Can you talk a little bit, Rob, about how it's evolved over the past seven or eight years? That's quite a a while in the world of thought leadership and content marketing. 
Yeah, of course. One of the things that has kept the industry outlook uh, perennial over the past uh, nearly eight years now is the flexibility of the program, the fact that we have been able to use it to help shape a senior oil and gas professional's thoughts about key trends for the year ahead in, a, in, a, in an ever-changing market. And over the past seven years, the oil and gas industry really has changed rather radically. Uh, and we've been able to reflect that in the research. We started the program in 2011 with, with a key purpose in, in mind, and, and that was that we'd identified we were very good as an organization at technical thought leadership. Uh, so, for example, going to events, writing papers in journals that really look at the nuts and bolts of the industry and how, from a very technical and academic perspective, we're helping uh, oil and gas companies across the value chain uh, to, to become safer, more sustainable, more, more, more efficient in their operations. What we noticed was that we didn't have a position as a commentator at the macroeconomic level. We weren't talking alongside our clients about key trends across the oil and gas industry that we were expecting to see. And we felt that we needed to pull the two uh, elements of thought leadership together. And this is why the, the Industry Outlook program was, was important for us uh, at the time. We launched our first report in January 2011, and it was just some months after, uh, I don't know if you remember the Deepwater Horizon uh, incident in the Gulf yes, of Mexico, yes. which, uh, which had a, a large bearing not only on the way that the industry was, was perceived, but also the way that the industry worked. We noticed that our, our clients and our customers, their buying patterns were going further up, sort of hierarchy of command, I suppose. So more senior people among our clients were taking a greater interest in the services that they procure partially as a result of, of what we saw from that incident. And that meant that we needed to be able to position ourselves talking about issues alongside more senior clients that, that we didn't necessarily have to do before. So, so it was an ideal time for us to, to launch a, a research program that really focused towards the C-suite. It's evolved quite dramatically since then. If I remember back to 2011, we, we surveyed 120 senior professionals across the industry uh, and, and produced a, a report on key trends based on that. Now we're just going through the process of, of surveying uh, senior oil and gas professionals about what they see to be the you know their confidence and, and their priorities for, for 2018. We're just shy of 800 uh, survey respondents there. So it's grown a lot in scale. And that's really helped us over the past seven years or so to have much richer sets of data so we're able to segment the survey and segment the survey results to be able to look at different regions, for example, rather than the global picture or different segments within a very large and varied industry, and then target the thought leadership more specifically towards those segments of audiences. And that's really helped us develop and evolve the, the, the research program over recent years. For different audiences. Can you talk a little bit about that, what the motivation is there and how that's worked for you, Rob? So customization of the survey data and of the research program itself into different geographies, different target markets, different segments of the oil and gas industry has been quite critical to, to the longevity of the program over recent years. One of the reasons behind that is we saw a massive dip in oil price back at the end of 2014, uh, and it, it's completely reshaped the industry. The industry has gone from very centralized business models where oil and gas companies have, have been buying using global framework agreements across their operations around the world to taking a more regionalized model, uh, looking at procuring services like technical advice from DMVGL uh, for, on a regional basis based on individual operations. Um, and uh, so what we needed to do from a, a marketing and communications point of view is not 
just talk macroeconomically about global trends, but also supports uh, colleagues in the business who are, who are, who are selling to, to regional customers with more customized regional, more segment-specific data. So as we've grown the credibility of the reporters, we've grown the, the number of respondents to, to our survey, we've been able to segment, uh, with, uh, segment the survey responses with data. So, so the, the campaign when we launch uh, nowadays doesn't just focus on launching a global report at the beginning of January on key trends for the year ahead, but we also uh, look to take our thought leadership to market, be it through uh, social media, through digital campaigning, through media relations on a regional basis as well and help communicate to the market on some of the key trends that we'll see in, in specific regions. And that relates very, very closely to the strategy that DMVGL uh, has as a business. And I think that's what quite one of the quite key elements of, of ensuring that you have a, a long-term thought leadership program that is able to adapt to your business strategy whilst, I suppose, remaining the keeping the core purpose uh, that, that, that you've always had. Can you tell me, Rob, what are some of the main outcomes that you seek to achieve in this program? Absolutely. So for us, I think it was initially about positioning ourselves as a credible commentator on, on macroeconomic industry trends and, and trying to elevate that position of our brand among senior stakeholders within that client base, the C-suite, essentially. If I think back to 2011, we set ourselves an objective to have 15 top management uh, among our audience download the research report that we publish every January. And that number has grown. So it's now around 650 uh, in 2017. And we've had, uh, we now have around 7,000 downloads of the report each year compared to just 1,000 when we, we started back in 2011. The popularity and scale of the impact that we're producing has grown tremendously. And I think what we see now is that it's grown beyond targeting the C-suites. One of the things that's been really important for us in the long-term success of the program over the years has been having that flexibility of richer data coming in to the research program. We're able to target now not just the C-suite, but allowing our colleagues around the business to target audiences that matter to them. Uh, So I think it's really useful to have that level of flexibility in the program and allowing our people to talk about one piece of thought leadership to, to many different audiences. So over the course of this thought leadership program over the years, you've uh, helped elevate the position of the brand among senior stakeholders within the client base, within the C-suite. I'm just wondering, what are some of the main outcomes that you're seeking to measure in this program? The communications program that we put out each year surrounding the the industry outlook research is is very much mapped uh, towards a model for measurement. So we're trying to achieve a number of different things uh, here. And and we we group the activity and the metrics, our measurement of that activity around four areas. The first one, uh, Fergal, is reach. So how are we broadening the number of people who know us as a commentator on industry trends? And and those the the metrics around that reach could be, for example, the number of media mentions we receive or the number of visits to relevant pages on our websites, uh, for example. The second metric group is reputation. Uh, So that's about promoting trust in DMVGL as a technical advisor and provider of industry foresight. So we'll focus on having metrics that might focus on uh, the number of quotes in the media uh, from our uh, our spokespeople or engagement with social media activity related to the industry outlook. Third group is around creating relationships. So how are we creating a positive perception of DMVGL? And here we might measure for the industry outlook report the number of downloads of the report itself among our target groups. And finally, we have a measure around revenue 
enablement. So how are we turning stakeholders into advocates and business prospects for DMVGL? How are we pushing our potential prospects through a funnel where they'll come closer to a meeting with our business development people or uh, an inquiry regarding a particular service that we might have? So can we, for example, successfully get executive clients to attend a briefing session on the research? And how many invitations are we getting and what does that mean? How does that then convert into business? So what we tend to do is use a model where we're pushing our uh, uh, our potential prospects, our audiences through a, a traditional funnel towards a more tangible sale for the business. Very multidimensional approach there, Rob. Um, presumably this has evolved over time and you've been able to fine tune it over the years. Yeah, we have indeed. And one of the things that I've noticed most importantly is the way that we have created credibility and advocacy, not just externally for the research program, but internally as well. One of the great things about having a long-term research program such as this is it gives you time to develop credibility with your senior stakeholders. And and that's that is great for two reasons. Firstly, I've noticed over time uh, our senior people become far more involved in how we shape the the survey that goes out, how we shape the trends uh, and the research. But also, uh, they've been very become increasingly involved in in going out to their own network and uh, and and securing interviews for us, for example, among C-suite contacts in their own network. So contributing to the development of the research has become a lot stronger o- over recent years. The other aspect of internal advocacy that that has become prevalent over the years is how our people, how our 13,000 employees engage with the research program uh, and how they take the research to their own networks uh, and the networks in which they sell into. So if I take social media, for example, at DMVGL, we have about 11,000 LinkedIn followers. But if I were able to look at the networks of each of the 13,000 people around the business and look at the number of followers that they have, that total number of followers is far greater than the channels that we have in the communications team. So the more advocacy that I can build internally among our employees to share findings from the research towards their networks, the greater profile that we're able to have. And I've seen that build quite significantly over over the past few years. There's still work to be done there, but we've really noticed the value of spending time creating internal advocacy at a senior level and also across the wider employee base to help promote the research. Over the past, I'd certainly say three years, we've been thinking about the role of social media in campaigning the research results at a much earlier stage than we ever have done before. So I'll give you an example of just a couple of weeks ago where the team uh, at Longitude and the team at DMVGL came together to start brainstorming some of the initial key trends uh, that we'll be putting into our 2018 report based on an initial cut of data from our survey for 2018. And one of the elements that we born in mind was not just the trends that we will include in the overall global report, which will, of course, promote and make available for download from our website, but we were also looking into pieces of content that could be of use just for social media towards target audiences. And who are the target audiences that we'll look to, to, or who are the audiences that we'll look to target using social media? So it becomes part of the plan an awful lot earlier, but it's, it's not just a case of thinking about how we might make content 
shorter, quicker to digest as it, as, as it often is within social media. But how do we make sure that we're using, for example, LinkedIn to target specific segments of audiences and push research findings towards those specific segments now that we have this much greater data set, much richer data set than we've ever had before? I'm interested in how you build a long-term piece of research like this, a long-term uh, research program. On the one hand, presumably you need to make sure there's a consistency, something that you can, at the core of the research program over time, I guess at the same time, there's a need to keep it fresh and, and reinvent things. Yeah, it's a really good question, Fergal. And it's uh, something we constantly have to bear in mind each year when we begin the program again, uh, because I think there can often be a knee-jerk reaction to want to reshape the research, reshape the survey that will inform the research uh, and start from scratch year on year. Uh, and actually, that can be something that's quite dangerous to do uh, over the course of, of a long-term program such as this. If I think back to 2011, the purpose of the research, which is to measure confidence and priorities in the oil and gas industry among senior oil and gas professionals, that hasn't changed. What has changed is the scope and the scale of the research uh, and how we take it to market. And, and so when we're designing the survey each year, there are a number of questions that we have, haven't changed at all. Um, we're still, we still ask and have done for, for, for the past seven years, we still ask respondents to give us their insights on industry confidence. We still look at investment priorities and how investments will change. And what that allows us to do is create trend data, which is absolutely fascinating in a market that has changed so dramatically as the oil and gas industry over the past five years or so. Uh, and you can start to be able to correlate pieces from the research together, and we can start to look at segmentation of that research and, and give a picture of how the industry has changed over the past seven years. Had we decided to throw those questions away, even just for a couple of years over the past seven years, and ask something else instead, we wouldn't have that consistent trend data. The market has come to expect this piece of research from DMVGL, and they've, they've come to expect something particular from it. And so the core of the research, I think, has to be consistent and it has to stay the same. That doesn't mean that some of the elements, uh, you know, some of the questions that we ask in the survey, some of the themes that we explore within the research can't change depending on uh, the strategy of our business, depending on the changing uh, nature of the market. And of course, we always make sure there's a fresh element to the survey year on year by focusing on a topic that, that may be completely new uh, or we might not have focused on for the past, uh, past few years, for example. But what I would say is you do need to have that consistency and uh, in the purpose of the research and, and some core data each year that you're able to look at from a trend point of view. Absolutely. It's a very rich discussion, Rob. I'm just wondering, over the looking back over the last few years, whether you have got some recommendations around campaign planning, thought leadership for other B2B marketers. I think a key piece of advice that I've learned over the past few years has been to ensure that in a long-term program, you keep the purpose of your thought leadership program, but you make sure that it has enough flexibility to be able to answer year on year to the changing needs of the business, the changing needs of the market, and to make sure that, that the data you're gathering is rich enough to be able to segment it towards what's important for your business and what's important from your, for your market. That, that's been really uh, useful for us. Each year, I'm tremendously surprised at how long we can take that 
those trends to market for. Initially, I'd always thought to myself, well, we'll be able to flog this until maybe, you know, March, April time. By that point, key trends for the year ahead uh, essentially becomes old news. And we tested something out just just last, uh, just earlier on this year, actually, in, in October of this year. So October of, of the year uh, that the report had come out in, um, we we created a dedicated campaign on a particular theme where we offered the download of the report based on the research. And it had tremendously high download rates. It was still popular and it was still important to our customers, you know, three quarters of the way through the year that we're talking about. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot that can be done with thought leadership research to reinforce messaging, take the report or elements of the report, elements of the research back out to market across the year and always think back about what more you can do to, uh, to milk it even further for want of a, a better term. Yes, that's great advice, particularly in a world where the half-life of thought leadership and the constant barrage of ideas, timeframes are getting shorter and shorter. But yet throughout the year, you will see the uh, these themes emerge again, don't they? And being able to blend them into your research uh, is certainly an important lesson. So that's great advice. Thank you, Rob. Not a problem at all. Now, what's next? Um, you mentioned 2018. Can you talk a little bit about what you're looking for in the content of the survey and what the next year holds? Yeah, so our 2018 survey has been out in the field for, for just around three weeks now. We are just shy of 800 respondents, which is great. It gives us the richness of data to be able to do some great things when, when we come to taking the program to market in January of next year. I think for 2018 and the years to come, what we'll be focusing on is making sure that we are keeping the purpose of the report very true to what we've been doing over the past seven years, but thinking about the way that we take it to market. How can we make sure that we're carving up content to make sure it is uh, digestible to those who have very little time, in addition to making sure that we're giving a great piece of, of long-form content to an audience who, who have, have built up a certain appreciation and built up a certain regard for it. I think also what we'll be looking to do is seeing how in greater levels of detail we make the link between the thought leadership program and how we can drive qualified leads for the organization. And I think the scope of our work in 2018 and uh, and beyond will be focusing on uh, how we bridge the gap between those two. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, Rob. Thanks, Fergal. And thank you so much for sharing your experience and fresh thinking on thought leadership today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks. Thanks to everyone listening today. If you'd like to find out more about how to create high-impact thought leadership campaigns, please go to longitude.co.uk and click on Our Thinking.